Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to tell you a thing. Um, a couple of my colleagues who are preaching this morning at other UCC churches in the Dallas area uh, are doing what is called uh, Holy Humor Sunday. And on Holy Humor Sunday, people stand up and tell jokes during the worship service. I mean, you have the worship service, but in between certain things, people tell jokes because the joke is on the evil one. They thought that the evil one thought that Jesus was done for, for good. But that's the joke, that Jesus would never be done for because Jesus is and with God, and that is the promise. And so I'm just saying that today, maybe New Church should have had a Holy Humor Sunday because we've had a lot of funny things going on, haven't we? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm telling you. But anyway, we're doing okay, and we're going to have a great, I mean, we already have a great service, and it's going to continue that way. Amen. One Easter Sunday, I was invited out to some friend's house. They had about a 13-acre, uh, had a home on about 13 acres, and they always had an after-church Easter celebration at their house. And lots of people came. Uh, it was a big event. They had an Easter egg hunt. And uh, it was always a lot of fun. And so I went out there, and uh, we had an Easter egg hunt. And, and then they, serve a they served a big catered meal and, you know, drinks and everything. So I went for that, and uh, it was wonderful. And as I was making my way ac across the lawn to where they were serving the food and drinks, a young woman came up to me. And now I want you to know that most of the people there weren't from our church. Uh, they were academics. They were from Texas A&M University. They, they, did, they were engineers and English professors and education professors. And, and I didn't know a lot of them. There were some of our church people there. Well, I was on high. I was on a huge Easter high because we had just finished uh, the Easter service, and I went out there, and I'm strutting across the lawn to go get something to eat, something to drink, and a young woman came up next to me, and she inquired as to if I was a pastor of a church, and I, and I thought, oh, it's my chance. You know, I don't know her. She doesn't know me. I can invite her to church, and, and, she, and before I could even finish confirming that I was pastor of Friends Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in College Station, she said, why would you take a job like that? Why would you take a job where you basically um, talk about a medieval myth? Well, you know, talk about feeling like a balloon that's been punctured. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, I didn't even know what to say. I, I just started moving back and let her go on and I thought, how, why would somebody say that to me? It made me so sad. And I didn't really have words to respond to that. I was new, newly out of, uh, out of seminary. I, I was in my first church in the United Church of Christ. I, I just didn't even, I was just so 
just taken aback by it. And I felt so bad for her that, that that's what she thought of the gospel message. Huh. And after a while, I got really angry. <laughs> why, why would you say that to me? You know, it's Easter Sunday. Uh, and, and I found myself doubting myself. What, what do I believe? And, and what of what I preached this morning is what I really believe? It was a difficult day for me, obviously, because I still remember it. So if now, in these days after Easter Sunday, you find yourself doubting the transforming presence of God, the liberating presence of God, the compassionate presence of God in your life, welcome to the club. We're in good company. The story of Thomas is the perfect scripture for the Sunday after Easter Sunday. You know, it was the evening of the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene had come to Jesus' followers and the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. But as night falls, the disciples are holed up in a locked house. They're afraid, and they have every reason to be because the religious authorities and the political authorities were killing people. So the post-Easter story begins with doubt. It begins with a doubt that Jesus was, uh, was dead and a subsequent fear that all was lost. That's where the disciples are on the evening of the resurrection. Then, as if on cue, somehow unhindered by locked doors, the risen Jesus arrives and stands among them and says, Peace be with you, which is a miracle in and of itself. He says, Peace be with you to the people who had betrayed him and abandoned him, and yet Jesus, the risen Christ, is standing there and saying, Peace be with you. So have you ever wondered why Jesus showed those present, that the risen Christ showed those present his wounds? Does he look so different that the wounds act as identifying marks? Or does he look the same, but the wounds prove that he is the person who was crucified? Or is he trying to assure them that torture and death have indeed been overcome, that he has somehow, like Lazarus, come out on the other side? Whatever the details are, whichever one of those things you kind of cling to, Jesus' actions seem designed to allay a second kind of doubt. The first was the fear, the first doubt was the fear that everything was over. The second kind of doubt was the suspicion that death still had dominion, that the evil one was still at work in the world. Suspicion that death still had dominion, that physical resurrection was impossible, that no one can die and rise again. But there's maybe a third possibility of doubt. This doubt isn't focused on confirming that it really is Jesus or that resurrection really does happen. Rather, it's a doubt that focuses on whether Jesus is the actual Messiah 
the beloved of God, the Christ, the anointed one, because it is still in their thinking that a genuine Messiah would arise from death in triumph, in vulnerable splendor. So they doubt that this is the risen Christ, the risen Jesus, because this is a suffering servant, still marked by vulnerability and by his wounds. In short, from this point of view, the true Messiah acting on behalf of a wounded world rises as a wounded Savior. As a sign of authenticity, then, Jesus displays his hands and his side. God's beloved comes not as a military conqueror without blemish, but rather a strong and peaceful shepherd bearing the wounds of the world, a child of God and a child of humanity. This risen Jesus, then, is the word made flesh, and flesh means vulnerability. And flesh, this flesh, has wounds. All of which brings us to the disciple often called Doubting Thomas. As if he demands more tangible proof than any of the others did, right? But in fact, he doesn't. He is just forthrightly asking for what the others have already received, including the opportunity to inspect Jesus' wounds. We don't know what kind of doubt drives Thomas. It may be a combination of all the three that I've mentioned, but whatever the answer, his companions may well have had the same doubts that he did. They just didn't, they just didn't vocally express it, right? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can see, unless I can touch. But Thomas isn't any more willing to take their word for it than they were to take Mary Magdalene's word. In this sense, Thomas is no different than the rest of the disciples. He is, in fact, a representative for their doubts and for their dependence on signs and wonders in order to believe. And wouldn't we all like that? Wouldn't we all like the heavens to open and us to see God, see Jesus, to hear a voice? I mean, how many times in your life have you been on your knees and said, I just need a word, God, you know? In this way, there's a key tension in the gospel that comes to a head here. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? He says this to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? But in saying it to Thomas, he's really saying it to all all the people that are there. And then Jesus goes on and says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe And friends, that's you and me. We haven't seen. We haven't touched. But we are the offspring of those who did. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. It is as if Jesus says, I I get you. I get you. You need to see and touch my body in order to believe, and I will oblige you. But there's a deeper form of faith and trust, an even higher means of understanding that isn't dependent on signs and wonders, or even on the presence of my physical body, 
but rather I look to those who have ears and eyes to discern me within you and among you and in fact through all of creation. And I call you and commission you toward that deeper faith, that higher understanding. Now I give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to breathe on you and send you into an even deeper blessed intimacy with me. Even my resurrection, the sign of all signs, isn't the end of the road for you. With the Spirit's help, you will go. You will go farther. You will climb higher. You are called into the world. There is a more blessed faith beyond signs and wonders. The trust, the trust of those who have not seen. And with those words, Jesus reveals that resurrection is not just something that happened to one man in one time and in one place. It is a recurring event. It is a recurring that is always happening. That is always happening. And it is not just for one man. It is for all people. And it is for all of creation. And it is constantly happening again and again. You know, in many church circles, we hear a familiar refrain, especially during Holy Week. Well, it may be Friday, but someday, Sunday's coming, right? Y'all heard that before? Maybe Friday. And you may have lived a year of Fridays, but Sunday's coming. That's the promise, but sun, Sunday's coming. But the truth is, after Easter Sunday is Monday. And then Tuesday, and Wednesday, and so on, and so forth. And we woke up, and continue to wake up, to another mass shooting. We hear that a former president tweeted about World War III, and praised dictators. We turn on the news, and all the days after Easter, pretty much look like Friday, don't they? They pretty much look like Good Friday. It is as e if Easter didn't happen and didn't matter. And then the fears and the grief and the disappointments and the doubt begin to emerge, don't they? In my own life, I've certainly had my fair share of doubts. After one semester at seminary, I came close to quitting because my understanding of scriptures had been torn to shreds. Those of you, y'all can nod if you went to seminary. Yeah. When I was outed as a lesbian, when I was a pastor in the United Methodist Church, and left the active ministry to return to secular work and regroup, the pain was searing. The church that had baptized me and confirmed me and ordained me had essentially rejected me. And when I was in council with my uh, senior pastor who had brought the news to me that I was being accused, accused of being a lesbian, please, um, you know, he, he said to me at one point, 
Reverend Charles Anderson, he's retiring this year, he said, you know, Joe, the only way the disciples recognized the risen Christ was by his wounds. And that will be the way the risen Christ recognizes you, through your woundedness. And my friends, that is the way people recognize the living, risen Christ in all of us, by our woundedness and our willingness to still sing hallelujah, our willingness to still stand, our willingness to proclaim that the promises of God are true. And the doubts don't end there with all of that. What about violence created by humans but also created by nature? What about death? What about life after death? So if you're having any doubt about your life and faith, I hope you will embrace this story of Thomas, who for years has gotten a bad reputation for being a doubter. And then prayed us all out of that. But I call him the patron saint of liberal Christians. You know why? Because it is only amid doubt that we ask questions. And it is through our pain and struggle to find our way back to life. It is through our questions that the Holy Spirit is unleashed in the world and in us. And that we become authentic when we ask questions. Justice Thomas was an authentic questioner. And that we are made new by being authentic people, which is how the Holy Spirit works in you and me. Diana Butler Bass this week wrote that we Christians tend to forget that Easter Sunday is the first day of a 50-day cycle. Today, we start the second week of Easter. There will be seven of them. And we are invited in this period to explore what it means to be Christian, what it means to be a part of a community, to live with a sense of freedom from death, and to welcome the Spirit of God into our midst. Resurrection isn't just one day, and it didn't just happen to one person. And if you don't believe me, let's take a page from our young people who are living authentic, resurrected lives, protesting against guns by the droves, and protesting for the rights of women to have control over their own bodies, not to let the government do that. Let's look at these young people who are standing tall and strong. Yeah, they may not be coming to church on Sunday, but by golly, they are living resurrected lives, aren't they? We need to take a page from them. This is the beginning of the Christian story of liberation. Easter presents a past event, is celebrated with joy right here and now in the present, and pushes us out into the world and a future of God's justice and freedom and liberation and peace. And sometimes we feel like Easter just didn't happen. But it did happen. We did sing the hallelujahs. And then you and I go about the work of redemption and liberation and transformation doing justice and speaking peace for all people until the light breaks through over the entire world.
Hallelujah isn't the last word. It's the beginning. It's the first word of Easter. And it continues our journey into the resurrection and beyond. Amen.